The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and today we're talking about a list that we recently put up on Brooklyn Vegan, 35 best emo and post-hardcore albums of 2002. Uh, And to talk about this list with me is another music writer who's contributed to BV, who I know lived and breathed this kind of music in real time and still does. It's uh, Owen Morowitz. Welcome, Owen. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Start to be here. Yeah, it should be really fun. Um, so basically, I want to start by being like, whenever I see another publication put up a list, I know I have a lot of questions about it that rarely get answered. So I want to ask you, you saw this list go up. What were some of the burning questions that came to mind for you? Okay, so first question, why 35? <laughs> that it's is a, a good question. It's a weird number. Normally it's like 20 or 10, 25 or 50, but you went for 35. I want to know why. So I actually basically wanted it to be 20 albums. Um, And as I was narrowing that down, there were just too many that were getting left off. Like, I mean, 2002 was a huge year and it was like, I think a list of 20 is cleaner, but I also think at the end of the day, the main point of a retrospective like this is just to shine a light on stuff you think is cool. So I was like, if there's, if 20 is not enough to highlight everything that I really think deserves it, I'm just going to go more. And I was like, all right, it's going to cap it at 25. And then like, that wasn't enough. And I was like 30, but that's it because 30 even sounds like kind of crazy for like one genre one year. And I don't know. I just, it didn't feel right. There was just like stuff that was getting left off. And I just felt like, to talk, I wanted to, and I, and I still left big stuff off and we're going to get there too, but I wanted to try to paint like a wide picture of what that year was for these styles. And even calling it emo and post hardcore is like, there's stuff on here that's more pop punk, more metal core, more indie rock. Um, but I wanted to kind of like show the vast array of stuff in this realm that came out that year. And to be honest, this was the lowest number I could narrow it down to. <laughs> so that's really the answer. Okay, that's that's good. I'm I'm satiated with that. I think that's fine. Uh, it's one of those like kind of music writer things, I guess. Like you know, we love doing lists. We're always trying to like generate that content. And I know from my own experience, like towards the end of the year, trying to make that list of like best records that have come out in the year it gets harder and harder to whittle that stuff down to, you know, five or 10 or whatever. And I know in my own sort of stuff, I've been doing like the 10 and then I usually have like another 10 of like honorable mentions or other things that I'm like, yeah, this is still sick, but maybe it didn't make it into the list for whatever reason. So I can totally understand like trying to aim for 25 and then blowing it out to 35. That, that makes perfect sense. For uh, sure. And uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, please, you go ahead. Um, just to your point, like, yeah, I think like one of the things that I always run into when making lists is like, you've got the 10 
or however many that like truly are the best. But like a lot of times the ones you want to shine a, shine a light on aren't necessarily the top 10. Like, cause it's like, you don't, you want to, you don't want to just be like, well, here are the 10 most popular ones that everybody has talked about a lot. You also want to be like, Hey, don't forget about these. And sometimes those don't forget about these don't belong in the top 10, but they, but you want to talk about them. So it's. Yeah, no, I totally get that. You want to shine a light on some of the cool stuff that might not be in everyone's purview. Some of the stuff that people might've missed. And particularly with a list like this, you know, for a year as strong as 2002, like there's so much to choose from. So I certainly don't envy the task that you had in trying to, to make this ranking, but that leads me into my follow-up question. So how did you do the ranking? Was it pure vibes? Did you make a spreadsheet? Like how, how did the ranking come about? Well, I very much feel like a ranking, even though once you publish a ranked list, it's in stone, I feel like it should be something a little more malleable than that because like it changes over time, right? Like um, if you would have had me rank these albums in 2002, it definitely would have been different. Um, and so, and even now, I know if I was to redo this in 10 years, it would be different. And it's hard. And I'll, like, you're talking about a lot of albums too that are like so classic and monumental that like, like the top, everything in the top 10, maybe you could probably make an argument could have been number one. Um, so it was definitely not easy. Um, it came down to a mix of certainly personal preference as well as sort of like the influence that at least in my opinion, the album has had, like uh, I wanted to try to give more weight to the ones that have inspired music over the past 20 years. Um, Cause some of this stuff is amazing, but it just was time and place. And some of this stuff at the time you couldn't have predicted how influential it would be in 20 years. So I wanted to try to look at that. Um, I wanted to try to factor in just like, like, I guess sort of the albums just like place in the world. Like, I mean, there, you know, like it's like, it was, it was made by me, one person and I have my personal taste, but like, I wanted to try to also look beyond that and be like, okay, like, maybe this isn't my absolute favorite album, but I can see how this fits in and is very important to so many people. And so I, I, it was like kind of a mix of all those three things and just sort of like, which is honestly like probably my answer to any ranked list I've ever made. Um, unless it's just like a very, very personal like Twitter thing of like, these are my 10 favorite things. Like, um, so it's just sort of like weighing all those things, looking at, like I, I think the full list of of potential records was maybe like at forty or fifty. So it was just kind of like looking at those, narrowing it down as best as I could, and then kind of like weighing these factors in. And you know, like the ones near the top are the ones that kind of had all of those things. Like it's a personal favorite of mine. It's super influential. It holds up really well. It doesn't sound outdated, and it's a record that clearly like people talk about and and is not you know, some artifact or some relic of its time. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. I don't know if... No, it totally true. does. I think it's hard to do lists like this, right? Like particularly when you're doing an anniversary type list and for something as long as 
you know, 20 years, you do have to factor in these ideas of, you know, legacy, reception, influence, all these different factors that go into, you know, the record when it was released versus how it's received now and what its kind of, you know, reputation is, I guess. And then you also kind of have to factor in that a lot of the bands on this list really, you know, some of them were already quite well established. Um, and I know in, in bits and pieces in your list, you kind of go into how some of these records were departures from, say, the emo sound or a post-hardcore sound, bringing in different genres and influences and elements and stuff like that. Whereas a lot of other bands, like, these were their debut records. This was them starting out, putting a stamp on a particular time and sound. So there's a lot of conflicting kind of things there, so that makes it even more difficult to try and rank them, I think. Um, and then again, like, we're talking about 20 years ago. Like, music has come so far in 20 years that a lot of these bands are either still kicking or completely dead or you know they've gone through stylistic shifts and circled back to this sound you know what i mean so like there's so much so much there in this list it's so broad and i think that's what makes it so intriguing for me is that it is very diverse but it's also super interesting because there's so much going on yeah and i think that's like what makes 2002 such an interesting year for this kind of stuff so we did a list last year of the best, it was it was just emo, I didn't include also post-hardcore, of 2001. And I, I headlined it the year that emo broke, which was like kind of a sarcastic and like nod to the Sonic Youth Nirvana documentary, the year that punk broke. Because um, obviously 2001 is not the year that emo broke, but it certainly is the year that emo like became a mainstream phenomenon and had a hit on the charts. And, and like looking at 2001, like even the bands that, were big, like basically Jimmy World Thursday saves the day, Dashboard Confessional. We're all still like coming out of the underground emo world, um, which I guess is like kind of true for 2002 also. But like in 2002, you really have a lot of bands who were like kind of like overnight successes, like and and like quicker to get to major labels, quicker to like clearly be writing pop songs versus like underground emo songs that happen to have pop appeal you know I, I think there's there's a fine line and, and this this year had bands who were really shooting for like we're gonna be on mtv and then you had bands like the promise ring who were making like the polar opposite and who were just like we're gonna like make our weird indie art rock record that would nobody would want to play on television and is like really polarizing to our fans who like nothing feels good. And like the get up kids were doing the same thing. The anniversary were doing the same thing, um, et cetera. So it's like really this fascinating year where like, you just have the genres going in so many directions. You have people who were like, I want to be that thing. There are people who were like, I don't want to be that thing. I'm going to back away and do everything in my power to make you call me some other style of music, which never works. <laughs> um, but um so it's just like, yeah, it was a really, really like, like, if two, so the reason I bring the 2001 list up is because if 2001 is like the year that emo broke, like 2002 is like the year that emo exploded. Like if this, it really was in just a few months, you went from like the surprise success of 
Thursday, Jimmy World Saves the Day, and Jasper Confessional to like a slew of bands whose record labels knew they could have hits. Um, and that was, I think, the big difference. Is like when Thursday put out Full Collapse on Victory, neither Thursday nor Victory thought they would have a song on MTV. Um, when Taking Back Sunday put their first record on Victory, Tony Victory knew oh, this, now I know what we're capable of, you know? And like, and that's not any knock on, you know, I'll take it back Sunday's a fantastic band and we're going to talk a lot about them, but there was just a different um, type of mentality, I think, amongst the people involved with putting this music out. Yeah, totally. I think it was very emblematic of, let's say like a paradigm shift in terms of like what this music and what this scene could do with its audience with its reach with this style of music and you see very quickly in you know the bands from 2000 2001 to then 2002 2003 4 5 like that early period of the 2000s is just insane with you know quality records that still hold up today but just you know bands coming out of the woodwork and really having a go for it and having label support, having mainstream support, not to mention, you know, the internet, file sharing and all the sort of other factors that are swirling around all of this at the same time. So yeah, definitely a interesting time for sure. Totally. Um, so I want to know, so basically like we're going to talk a lot about what is on the list, but when I think people's first instinct when they see a list is almost like to figure out which of my favorites weren't there. So um, I want to hear from you, like when you read it, what were you like, I can't believe it's missing this or why is it missing this? So for me, the, the biggest standout that wasn't on this list, which again, like you said, kind of leans into my own personal bias and I could understand for all the rationale that we've just explained why it's not on the list. But if we're talking about just something that I think deserves to be on the list, uh, it would be uh, the first record from The Beautiful Mistake, Light a Match for I Deserve to Burn. It's a very underrated emo post-hardcore record, hugely influential for me. It was absolutely a gateway record into a whole bunch of other bands it sounds um and in doing some research for this part i kind of came across a whole bunch of other connections to other bands and labels and stuff that i guess i didn't know at the time because i was 14 and wasn't really thinking at that kind of level when i was listening to this music but yeah it's an incredible record it's one that i love very dearly uh and i still thrash the shit out of it today so uh that's my number one i think it deserves to be on the list and so so you had already sort of privately told me about this record um i that's not on the list because i had not heard it i'll be totally honest i had not heard of that band uh you pointed it out to me and i just listened the other day and it rules and um like, it's hard to hear something once and say for sure, like, if I could redo this, that would be there. But, like, I would call that, like, for me, like, already feels like a huge blind spot. Like, I'm excited to listen to that record more. And I don't know, maybe I'll come back in five years and be like, that should have been there. Because it's a sick record. Yeah, 
it's a very sick record and like you know i've looked into the band i've listened to all the stuff that they've put out and i can kind of see why they never really caught on you know like their follow-up record uh the name escapes me i think it is this is who you are came out in 2004 i think um you know it's cool but it's not quite as instantly memorable and, and kind of catchy as the as the first one so I can understand why they never really caught on despite the kind of surge in the scene and that sound of music. So, yeah, if we're talking about, like, legacy and staying power, you know, they're not really a band that had that. And, you know, you're fairly well-versed in this scene and this music and you hadn't even heard the record. So, like, obviously it doesn't have a huge legacy or reception. So that's that's fine. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Just for me through pure happenstance and a bunch of like weird things that I ran into in my youth. Like that record dropped in my lap, you know, all the way over here in Australia. And I just loved it. So yeah, I don't know if it, I don't know if it should be on the list. I feel like it deserves to be, but that's, you know, not really how we're making these determinations. So I can see that that's fair. No, but you need that kind of stuff on the list. Like, I mean, I don't want this to come off backhanded towards any band, but like, just for example, like, I don't know that necessarily people would consider that North Star album to be like widely important. Um, but like, I think that's a great record. It was huge in that time for me. Like, I mean, again, I, as I wrote in the blurb, it had a huge influence on Taking Back Sunday. And I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to give it like a shout too, because it's like, here's this fantastic band who influenced like one of the biggest bands in the scene who just doesn't really seem to like get their flowers. Um, but you know, like if somebody was to read the list and be like, you really put that record on there? Like that band is like such a blip. Like I wouldn't say they're totally wrong, you know? So you need yeah. those records that like, like to me, there's, there's a lot of different types. This is like, all right, I'm, I'm digressing, but I do that. Um, when I meet someone who's like much older than me, who lived through, like an era that I just could not have lived through. Um, I read a lot about music on the internet. I know what like the important records of like the 1980s are. What I want to know when I meet someone who lived through the 1980s is like, what's your favorite band from that era that nobody's talking about now? You know, cause like that's the only way you get those bands is that personal recommendation sort of way. Like if just stuff that falls a little bit outside of the canon kind of gets lost to like, you know, unless you were there, like it kind of just gets forgotten. And so like, I think it can be important when you're doing these retrospectives to like also make space for those kinds of artists. Yeah, totally. I agree. I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are older than me who have been in bands and running labels and doing stuff that, that I encounter in my day to day. And I'm constantly hitting them up for, for recommends or like just shooting them links to bands that I find now. And I'm like, Hey, I think you'd like this. This is sick. But I'm also trying to like get them to put me onto stuff that I don't know, you know? So I totally get that impulse. I have an interesting anecdote though regarding the North Star record. Uh, so we got into this a little bit in the DMs, but I'll, I'll revisit this for the listeners of the pod. So. It's a connection between the Beautiful Mistake record that I mentioned before and the North Star record. Um, 
so a lot of these albums, you know, for context in 2002, like I was 14 years old. So I was like in my, you know, like middle school to kind of later high school period. And I was trying to find new music. The only types of bands that were like probably on this list that I was definitely already into were like your Taking Back Sunday, brand new, like the really kind of popular emo stuff that was popping off. But I wanted more. I wanted, you know, weirder stuff, interesting stuff. Um, and I came across this CD compilation at a record store called Caddy of the Year. And it was the third volume of that compilation. Um, and it was two discs. It had one with a bunch of Australian bands, lots of skate punk, pop punk bits and pieces. And then there was a North American compilation, um, which turned me onto so many bands. Like, it's ridiculous. It had um, the hit single from that North Star record, had um, the first track from the Beautiful Mistake record, I also had tracks from Senses Fail, Rufio, Fall Out Boy, Starting Line, Get Up Kids, Movie Life. Like, it was just stacked. And, like, my 14-year-old brain just, like, went into overdrive. I was like, holy shit, all of this stuff rules. I need to get all of these records. Um, but that came out in 2003. So a lot of this stuff I've kind of come into, I guess, retrospectively, either at the time or later on in my kind of music discovery period. So even though I wasn't necessarily onto some of these records when they dropped, um, I've definitely come back to them in the subsequent years and been like, yeah, this is the good shit. Yeah, and that's amazing. I mean, um, first of all, comps have always been huge for me, like for getting into stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I was like in my early tweens i guess for this year and so like a lot of these records there were some that i did hear the year they dropped but a lot of them i came to like two or three years later um and also that's just so fascinating for me to hear because like yeah like i grew up not far from like the long island and new jersey scenes bands would come through like near the town i lived in um i don't know if i totally realized at the time like oh i live like 45 minutes from like the bands that are popping off and then like you're across the globe. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear like how that stuff did reach you. And uh, cause in hindsight, I'm like, Oh, like I was right there. And a lot of people weren't. Um, and you know, so I, my, my vision is probably skewed just by like that, you know? Yeah. But I think it's interesting too, because it kind of gets into the dynamic that we touched on before, right? Like this was a period in time where, you know, these things were tangible and accessible for, you know, people like me who are removed from that local or regional scene. Like, you know, there were definitely bands here in Australia doing that stuff. They were in the capital cities, you know, so you kind of had to be there to kind of see these smaller scenes kind of doing their own thing. But I mean, like, I, I grew up on a farm in, like, the country and like a regional area of Queensland, like my state here in Australia. So like for me, it was only when I came to the big smoke or the big city and I would go to a record store and like find the stuff that I wanted. So like, it's still kind of crazy that I could do that and come across a CD compilation that would put me onto all of this music that's so far removed 
from where I live. Um, but I mean, you know, we had access to that stuff. The internet was starting to really become a vehicle for this kind of discovery as well. Like, you know, I'm old enough, dating myself here, but old enough to remember like dial-up internet and Napster and like all of the early file sharing days. Like I definitely bootlegged a bunch of these records just because that was the only way I could get a hold of them and listen to them. Um, and then in terms of like MTV, like we started to have that stuff, you know, fairly accessible in Australia as well. So we had our own MTV kind of ripoff channel called Channel V that had a late night um, metal, hardcore, punk kind of session. Um, and yeah, a lot of these bands turned up on that. And I would find out about, you know, music videos and new albums and stuff through that. So all of these things were like pipelines into this stuff. Um, you just kind of had to be looking for it. Yeah, that's awesome. What were some other stuff that you felt were like glaring omissions? So I think for me, there was a couple that stood out. And again, like, I guess we'll get into this on why you decided to leave them off. So there's two that were kind of glaring to me, which was the self-titled album from The Used and uh, the debut record from Finch, What It Is To Burn. Uh, can you tell me about those records and if they were considered and maybe why you left them off? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely both pivotal records um, for that time and genre. Absolutely. Um, I guess there are a couple reasons. I mean, one is like I was saying, like I wanted to paint this wide picture and like, you know, like those were definitely some of the much bigger, much more mainstream approved bands. And like, um, you know, like there are other records on the list from bands who were similarly huge like that, like Coheed and Cambria, Taking Back Sunday, My Chemical Romance, Boxcar Racer, probably like at the time, the biggest band of all of these. Um, and I felt personally like uh, the used in the Finch records for me, just like didn't quite hold up as well as some of the other stuff that like, just to like, um, just for comparison, like the My Chem record, which at the time was not very big, but they, of course, on their next record became a huge band. Like going back to that first My Chem record, I was like almost blown away at how fresh it sounded. Um, going back to the used first record, I felt a bit like, yeah, this feels like 20 years ago. Um, and I don't mean to like disrespect the use. I mean, they put on for a lot of great bands. They helped popularize this sound. They introduced a lot of people to this music. Um, and you know, if somebody else made the list, they'd probably be on it. Um, so like no disrespect at all, but in trying to sort of like cover multiple bases, they just kind of became a casualty, um, for that reason. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I went back to the record myself and I was listening to it and kind of trying to answer that question for myself. I was like, yeah, why, why would Andrew leave this off? And I can kind of uh, understand the reasoning there. I spent a lot of time in the late 2000s, early 2010s uh, as a DJ for like essentially like an emo night, club night um, at a shitty little dive bar here in Brisbane. Uh, and 
I played the singles from that used record a lot, like done to death, have heard them a thousand times. So I think my own personal bias when I listened to that record is I was like, yep, that's definitely a used single. Good stuff. And then the deep cuts on the album, I guess, don't really do anything for me. So I can kind of see why it's left off, but I still think it's worth an honorable mention. Um, let's talk about the Finch record. What's going sure. on there? Um, honestly, kind of just a similar thing. Like I, I like really respect the hell out of Finch. Um, I think they did more than they get credit for. I think that the next record they did after this one is like even crazier and it never got the credit it deserved. That say hello to sunshine. Yeah, I think so. And they were like trying to sort of depart a bit from what they were stereotyped as. And um, I think like, just to be perfectly honest, I just think Finch don't fully get there as much as similar bands did. Um, I think they're solid. I definitely liked them a lot back in the day. Um, And yeah, I mean, just think listening back to that record and comparing it to similar bands that for me, it's it's like, it just is like a little bit undercooked in comparison to some of the bands who are doing similar things. But again, not a bad band by any means. Another person would make this list and have it probably in the top 10. Yeah, I think that record you know, was definitely a huge gateway record here in Australia. Like a lot of people around my age in in kind of the circles that I ran in loved the shit out of that record. Like it was always on at parties and I remember people listening to it. Like people really loved it. Same with that used record. But when I went back to it and listened to it as part of my research for the pod, I found it was woefully like inconsistent. Like, there's songs on there. So I think they um, they might have toured or played shows with Glassjaw. And they got Daryl Palumbo to come in and do some, some guest stuff. So I think he's a guest on maybe two or three songs on that record. Um, and there's one song that just sounds like a Glassjaw song. Like, he's singing for most of it. It's very bizarre. And then there's another track that's like, all weird and glitchy, kind of electronic. Kind of almost sounds like something you'd find on Refused, like The Shape of Punk to Come, but it's very jarring in the context of like what Finch are doing for the rest of the record. So there's just stuff like that that when I listened to it, I was like, yeah, okay, I can kind of see what they're going for, but this feels like it's zigging and zagging in all these different places. Um, there's a song on there that sounds like Three Days Grace. There's, you know, like one, like, bang a single right at the very end so like the sequencing is kind of off and weird i don't know just a very strange record but a huge record nonetheless oh yeah for sure and like you said i mean definitely a big gateway i think for a lot of people totally um yeah so what were some records were there any records on the list that you were kind of like i don't know if that one really should be there Ooh, that's a tough question um, I don't know if I would say that there's any on the list that I feel like don't deserve to be there. I think maybe in a different way, there's a few records on there that I am not familiar with at all, like mm-hmm. have not listened even once, and even some bands that I'm not familiar with at all. So there's definitely a couple of blind spots for me on the list. 
Um, so I'm just having a look now. So uh, the funeral diner record, uh, the anniversary record, uh, McCloskey, Velvet Team, the Gloria record, City of Caterpillar. Um, Pedro the Lion is like a band that I've always seen and heard of, but have just never bothered to get around and listen to. Um, and all the way at the top, like the the Rilo Kilo record, Execution of All Things, like I listened to that one today for the first time. So oh, wow. what did you think? Uh, it's cool. I like it. Um, I can definitely see its influence in a lot of stuff that came after it, um, which I think was like, I guess, where my head was at listening to it. Um, I don't know, like the closest thing I could think of was like a Tegan and Sarah record or something like that. I was like, ah, this kind of sounds like that, I guess. Um, But yeah, there's a bunch of stuff on there that was new for me, um, which I found kind of exciting, to be honest. I was like, oh, I get to like listen to these for the first time. So what were some that you listened to for the first time and were like immediately into if that happened? Yeah, that definitely happened. So that McCloskey record rules. Mm. Love that. Um, Definitely a band that I've never come across before. And I was reading through your your list and your write-up and I was like, hell yeah, that sounds right up my alley. Um, So I put it on a playlist and I was driving, running some errands like earlier this week and it just came on and I was like, holy shit, what is this? And I had to like, you know, sneakily look at my phone while I was driving and be like, oh, it's that McCluskey record. I was like, this fucking rules. Like, it was really, really good. I would definitely uh, revisit that very soon. So that uh, that record's interesting because, uh, well, first of all, it's one of the non-U.S. bands on the list. It's very, it's, it's an admittedly U.S.-centric list. Um, but also, so again, the headline is emo and post-hardcore. Now, those are both on their own like kind of umbrella terms. And then you get into the fact that like, I personally decided let's make room for everything from pop punk to metalcore to indie rock that may be in some way related. So like McCluskey, very much post hardcore, very much not emo. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think like there are bands that like thrice and Glassjaw, I would call post hardcore bands, but who were like in the emo scene toured with emo bands played warp tour, but McCluskey are like, more in the spirit of like, I mean, I compared them to the Pixies even in the review, but like, you know, like more in the spirit of like Fugazi or the Jesus Lizard or those kind of more angular post-punk, uh, post-hardcore bands. Um, uh, and so certainly not like in the scene with a lot of the other bands on this list. Um, but they're a post-hardcore band. And that was another thing is like, I, I didn't, I wanted, even by using the word post-hardcore, I kind of wanted to be like, all right, well, that doesn't just mean, you know, bands like Glassjaw. Um, And then you also brought up like Funeral Diner and City of Caterpillar, which were kind of holding it down for the screamo end of things. Um, And that was like, again, another sort of thing is like, like screamo is by definition a, a subset of emo and, or, you know, some people might say the only real version of emo. Um, but um, so I, you know, like those, that's the city of Caterpillar and the funeral diner records. And I feel like there was another straight up screamo record on there that I am forgetting now. Um, but, you know, I wanted to like make sure that those fit in. And there were some I left off, like I, the orchid self-titled record came out this year. Do you know that one? 
No, I know of the Orchid, but not so Orchid's with that a great record. band. I'm sure you would love that record. Um, and that was just sort of one of the casualties for no reason other than, you know, stuff had to get cut. And I just kind of felt like it's a great record. It's probably like, I don't know, maybe like the first two were probably a bit more important. Um, and then there was the, uh, the, there was a majority rule record this year that got left off. There's the page 99 majority rule split. Um, it was tough. It was really, there were really tough calls to make. Um, and yet you're looking at a list where again, like city of Caterpillar who were like this screamo band with like nine minute songs, like the opposite of anything that you could play on the radio is up there with like the starting line who were like straight <laughs> up writing pop music. And somehow this list is like, these are the same style of music, like at least under a certain umbrella. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of weird calls had to be made for in, in order to kind of paint that picture. Yeah, totally. But I think still the right calls. You know, I definitely agree with the reasoning and the logic there. And I think it just goes to show, like, what an interesting time it was for the cross-pollination across these different subgenres and scenes, right? Like, you definitely had things like the Warp Tour and all of these different tour packages going on in the U.S., um, like for me, I, uh, would get copies of alternative press at the, you know, at the news agent here. And I would read that and look at all of the, you know, the posters for tours and lineups and stuff that was happening in the U S and I would always just be like, oh man, it'd be so cool to see all of these bands playing with all of these other bands. Um, and you kind of have that effect going on in this list, right? Like to put, you know, like a legit screamo band next to the starting line like there were some wonky tours happening in the early 2000s like there were bands you know definitely getting on stages and not sounding anything like the band that preceded them or the band that would come after them so i think that's a cool reflection of the the time period yeah and like before you were talking about compilation albums um one of the, I mean, probably for me, the biggest compilation album that came out in 2002 was Atticus Dragging the Lake. Did you know that one? The, yeah, familiar I, with that one. I did a retrospective on that recently, too. And even on that, you had, like, American Nightmare making, like, straight-up hardcore right next to, like, Blink-182, um, who who curated it. Remember, uh, Tom and Mark from Blink-182 curated that. And then on, like, an even more extreme example, I'm blanking on the name right now, but I had a comp from that era, and it had, like, Converge and Poison the Well, and then it had, like, Pop Punk. And, like, that was just, like, that was what it was. Like, it was really normal in that time. They were like, oh, like, you listen to the movie life? Here, you might like this metalcore band also, you know? <laughs> like, and, um, and they, so, and they like, were right. Right. And they were right. That's the thing. Like exactly. the, it really, and then, and sh like you said, shows reflected it built. Like when you look at tours from back then, like, and even just, or local shows, like I used to, I used to go to local shows and you would get like a pop punk band, a metalcore band and like a ska band on like the same show. And that was just what it, the way it was. And nobody questioned it. And like, any, to me, like anything basically under, the overall umbrella of like punk was appealing if you were part of this scene. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm a firm believer in mixed bills and mm -hmm. I think that's a cool way to cut your teeth, right? To, to do what you do, 
do it well and try and win over the other crowd try and win over people who aren't necessarily there for you like i think that's that's an integral part to the to the subculture and trying to kind of really make a name for yourself so yeah. uh, i'm totally on board with that um and it's just one of those things like i don't know like comps were huge and i can remember going to shows and you know you'd go to the merch table and they'd often have just like bootleg copies of <laughs> like cdrs or like free label promo cds like i got onto so many bands from that sort of peripheral stuff that was just there for the taking and you weren't necessarily looking for it but it was there um so yeah just a I read this list and I'm just like, man, what a cool time for music. Like, so for sure. Um, were there other records on there that maybe you just heard for the first time that you really liked? Yeah. So another band that's always been kind of like a known blind spot for me is uh, Desperacitos. Uh, so in the early 2000s, I had a friend who put me onto Bright Eyes and Conor Oberst. And I definitely got into a lot of records in that period of time. But I guess I was never like kind of like a ride or die Oberst fan. But I definitely appreciated those records. Um, but it wasn't until many years later, I think maybe like 2012, when I came across Desperacitos and found out that that was a Connor Oberst vehicle. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. I didn't know that he had another band and I didn't know it sounded like that. That's weird. Um, and then in my, like, you know, just Wikipedia, you know, link jumping, I found out about that first record and I was like, Oh shit, they put out a record in like the early 2000s. That's crazy. Um, so it was always kind of there, but I never really bothered to listen to it until now. Um, and it rules. It's a great record. Yeah. What do you think about it? compared to Bright Eyes, because it's obviously quite different. I think, for me, I always found Connor's lyrics in Bright Eyes to be, you know, incredibly intricate, ornate, verbose, you know, in that kind of emo fashion. Like, there was definitely, you know, this kind of narrative, this storytelling element to, to what he was trying to portray on a record. Um, I found the Desperacitos record to be a little bit more, I guess, accessible in, in a way. And it seemed to have more of a, I don't know what's the right term I'm going for here, a more of a, like an objective narrative voice. Definitely has more of a political undertone to it, which I know you touched on in your list. Um, but yeah, I just think it has a different vibe to it. Like, obviously, musically and stylistically, it's it's different. But I think what Connor's doing on the record is different, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I would, you know, there's a good argument to be made that Bright Eyes should have also been on this list. Um, I think I, like, tried to rationalize with myself that maybe Connor could just be there once and maybe Desaparecidos, like, fits the vibe a little more. But I think there's a good argument to be made that, like, Bright Eyes should have been on it and probably in the top ten. Um but, you know, so it goes. Um, <laughs> uh, so why don't we why don't we go down the top 10? Okay. 
So the f- number 10 is Me Without You, A to B Life. Uh, we're actually recording this two days after Me Without You played their final show. Yeah, I've seen the, uh, the stuff coming through Twitter. It looks, looks like a fun time. I'm really so I went when they played brother sister in full in December in New York um which like that's my favorite me without you record and I was like I know they're gonna do one more run but like if my last me without you show is seeing them play brother sister in full I'm gonna like treasure that forever and then I decided not to go to the last run and I immediately regret it now that I see like (laughs) I'm like I should have went one more time um they were such a special band, so unique. Every album is amazing in its own right. They've changed so much over the years. Um, this one is probably like the closest thing they have to like what you might just call a straightforward post-hardcore record. Um, and, and I kind of said this on the list too, but like even on this record, which is kind of straightforward for the genre, you can still tell they're just like, a much better band than so many others. Like they're so unique, I think. Uh, what's your sort of take on on them or this record in particular? So they're a band that I'm not very familiar with. Uh, a band that I would always see in other reviews and, you know, a band that people would get compared to quite a lot. Um, I'm thinking obviously of La Dispute. They're kind of like, always compared to me without you and i saw uh going back to the the final show stuff i saw like a post from la dispute about me without you and how pivotal that band was to their band so that connection is definitely you know not unfounded but i think for whatever reason i've never found an entry point into that band i've just never really for whatever reason had a way in and I don't know why that is um, I listened to this record and loved it and I was like oh I can see how hugely influential this is and how they're just in a different kind of category unto their own in terms of what they're doing stylistically and lyrically conceptually um, so yeah definitely worthy of being in the top 10 but it was more of a discovery for me than, mm-hmm. than a revisit for sure have you heard um, either Brother Sister or Catch for Us the Foxes? I don't believe so. But you should check I'm, those out. I, I may have. I don't know. Think, think you'd like them. I would say that those are kind of the ones where they sort of come into their own, so to speak. Um, Brother Sister, again, is my favorite. And the last one's really good, too. But I, I, I've, if you aren't super familiar, I would check those two records out. I think it would be really hard to be into this kind of music and not like them. Okay. Yeah, everything that I've heard, I've liked and or loved. So there's really no reason to not, for whatever reason, I just haven't. And I really don't have a good excuse. So Mm -hmm. I will do that. I'll I'll suss those records out for sure. Awesome. So number nine on the list, which maybe is, I don't want to say controversial, but like, just as like, okay, so Coheed and Cambria are not in the top 10 my Chemical Romance is not in the top 10. They're ranked pretty highly. Um, but, like, there are definitely records that are... Even the starting line is... I mean, that's kind of such a pivotal album and so huge. Like, there are some records that are certainly a lot bigger and more universally liked than the one I'm about to bring up that ranked a bit lower. 
Um, but number nine on this list was Owen, No Good for No One Now. Uh, and Owen is, of course, the solo project of Mike Kinsella, the uh, vocalist of American football. Um, I think at this point in time, it is like pretty much a given that American football are like one of the top emo bands ever. I feel like Mike's solo project, Owen, hasn't quite gotten that type of, I guess, reevaluation. But for me, No Good for No One Now by Owen like this might be my, honestly, my favorite Mike Kinsella record from that period. Um, and so I, I think like, in you know, talking about this in relation to stuff like Glassjaw and Taking Back Sunday and My Chemical Romance and Co-Eating Cambria, I mean, it's not like Mike Owen was so much smaller. Um, but I think like if American football gets to be the important band that they are, I think No Good for Noah Now by Owen it's it's just got to be talked about more because for me this is the record really where Mike Kinsella he already like he you know he was so good at those sort of mathy noodley guitars and these like intricate structures and alternate tunings and all this stuff that was unique for the genre and like I mean like you, you look at like what people consider to be like Midwest emo or whatever you call it like I mean Mike Kinsella and his brother Tim Kinsella like they wrote the book on that stuff um but for me this record is where Mike on top of all that becomes just like a great songwriter. Like his lyrics are really narrative and like very emotional and, and impactful and blunt and like, and poetic. And it's just like, this to me is where he really captures why this type of music is still so important to people. Like when you, um, when you look at, I don't know, like, I said this recently on a different podcast episode, but like if you look at someone like Phoebe Bridgers, one of the biggest artists around right now in indie, she comes from emo. Like the style of songwriting that she writes with, that comes from emo. Um, and I think when and I think what people gained from emo is like the sort of ability to like really open up in a first person introspective way and sing about heartbreak in a way that was like really deeply honest and not just like you know, like love songs and breakup songs and, um, and sing a lot about like mental health and stuff in ways that were not really that common in pop music. And I think this record is where Mike Kinsella develops the lyricism that really puts him in like the A-list of emo singer songwriters. Uh, and so that's why I think it deserved to be in the top 10. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, first of all, great band name, can't, can't recommend that band name enough. I think that's a really strong name. Um, you know, I have a bit of personal bias there, but I think it's a great name. Um, it's also kind of same with me without you. You know, like the Kinsella, you know, projects and all the different things that they're plugged into. Owen was always one of the projects that I knew of, but just never ventured into for some strange reason. Which is crazy because, you know, I love American football. I love mathy, noodly guitars. And we'll get into that when we talk about Minus the Bear. So there was definitely stuff there to love. I think listening to the record, the biggest thing that stuck out for me is just how brutal and vulnerable and bitter the record is. And there's this really great contrast with the musical elements and just kind of like the tone of the instrumentation and then just the way his voice and his lyrics kind of cut through all of it. 
and it was really, really captivating to listen to. Um, I will say that it's the type of record that I don't think I could have listened to or appreciated when I was 14. I don't think I had the the life experience and the kind of concept of heartbreak in the way that, you know, he tells it to really understand what was going in that record. Uh, even maybe in my 20s, I would still not really latch onto it in the way that it, that it deserves. Um, but listening to it now in my 30s, I'm like, oh yeah, this this is great. There's so much to love here. I think that's fascinating because emo gets stereotyped as like conveying feelings that you should grow out of by the time you're like 19. So I, and I think that's a big reason why this record holds up because yeah, like these are not like, you know, like this came out the same year that some of these band members were like in their late teens, early twenties. And, you know, Mike Kinsella was a bit older and his perspective was, you know, a bit wiser. And so like, I think the feelings on this record, like, I mean, they also, some some of them don't age well, because like you said, it, it's so bitter that it's like some of this stuff you're almost like, I don't know if I can always listen to him sing about that. But at the same time, I think, like you said, the way he deals with heartbreak is on a level that is not as juvenile, I think, as some of the bands in this world at least get stereotyped or, or sometimes objectively do, you know. Sure. Like, I think, you know, I can't, I can't speak for Mike, like, but I think I'm not sure how he would feel listening to this record now, 20 that years That was removed. my thought, like writing the review. I was like, I don't know, like if I was Mike Kinsella, like, could I listen to this still? Yeah, <laughs> it's such a bloodletting, you know, like, and I can understand, you know, as, as an adult, why that type of catharsis would have been necessary for him in that moment. Like, you know, emo always gets lumped in with being like breakup records like this is a fucking breakup record like it is it's dark but i think that's what makes it so interesting um but yeah i don't know if it's the type of thing that you know mike kinsella would throw on and be like oh yeah cool for good times yeah i'm sure he wouldn't say the good times <laughs> um but you know Pretty much every rec Owen record is like devastatingly depressing. So, um, yep. <laughs> but uh, moving on to another breakup record, number eight is Pedro the Lion's divorce concept album, or as some say, Control. Now, you said that you hadn't heard this one. Have you heard it now? I have listened to it. I'll uh, I'll cast a dissenting opinion. Didn't really care for it. Really? Didn't, yeah, didn't didn't latch on to me in a way that was memorable uh i can't quite put my finger on why exactly it's another one that i think i'll have to return to maybe i need subsequent listens to really kind of sink my teeth in there but yeah first listen glided straight over it interesting i mean i would say like i don't know if i want to use this word but like you might call it a grower just because like as far as some of the other albums on this list go, like it's certainly like less immediate, I think. I mean, unless, you know, it's probably immediate for some people, but like, I think it's the kind of record that reveals itself over time. Um, and I also think because of that, 
that's one of the reasons I think it holds up so well. It's like, I listened to this record when I was listening back to everything in this list, this one did not make me feel, Oh wow. Like that sure is 2002. I, I feel like this could be released today and it would still be considered like fairly contemporary sounding. Okay. I wonder but, if that's, I wonder if that's by design. You know, like, I wonder if they were trying to go for a kind of timeless sound or something, yeah, that I, wo- some, something that was striking out of, you know, that era, which, and as I, we've already discussed, had so much kind of bubbling up in it at the time. And I think similar to Mike Kinsella, like David Bazan was a bit older. Um, so, like, like, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't really trying to be emo like he he's even uh, I, I actually I think it's quoted in the write up. Um, where did he say this? Oh yeah. He said it on, uh, Damien Abraham, the singer of fucked ups podcast turned out a punk. He basically admitted like being signed to Jade tree, like might've influenced him to try to sound a little bit more like what was happening in emo. Cause Jade tree was kind of considered an emo label, but like Pedro, the lion were from the Pacific Northwest. Like they were into like built to spill and slow core. Um, and so I think like this record, it's it's definitely got that emo thing attached to it, but it's also like a lot more rooted in like traditional '90s indie rock, um, which you know for whatever reason has sort of it doesn't like that type of music. Maybe doesn't feel, or at least people don't expect you to grow out of it. Like it's it's almost like it's it's considered a bit more adult in the first place, whether or not it really should be. But um, but I think that that is part of why, you know, this one doesn't sound like necessarily so tied to a moment because it kind of already was just like out of place in a way. Yeah, interesting. I'm definitely going to listen to it again and try and see if I can't enjoy it, at least try and figure out why I don't enjoy it, which is almost kind of a harder question to answer. Probably. Well, I'll catch up with you in a couple months and we'll revisit Pedro the Lion. Um, So again, like, so we're going to move on to number seven, uh, just sort of, again, looking at like the stylistic variation of the era. Like, so you got like Me Without You at 10, which is very post-hardcore. Then Owen is like an acoustic singer, songwriter record. As we just kind of said, Pedro the Lion, like you might even call an indie rock record. And then seven is Hot Water Music's Caution, which you might just call a straight up punk record. Um, but I also feel like hot water music have always been like a emo post hardcore friendly punk band in a way that say like bad religion or the distillers were because they had great records that are not on this list because I just, I, the one thing I didn't do was I didn't like stretch it to punk. Cause then we'd be talking at least at a 50 albums list. I mean, probably more, yeah, um, but I think hot water music are this band who they can, you know, play with a straight up punk band and they can play with like an emo or a post-hardcore band. And there's DNA that's shared across all of that. So what's your sort of take on this record? Yeah. Again, like a band that I'm familiar with, I know of, and I've listened to their records a bunch. I'm not, you know, crazy about them for whatever reason. I've never like found a record that I was like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride or die for this record. I will say that Caution is probably my favorite Hot Water Music record, and I think maybe the one that sticks with me the most. Um, definitely a good listen, fun listen. 
I think it's worthy of being in its place on this list. Because like you say, they were always in the orbit of all of these other bands and can very easily slot into a lineup with pretty much everyone on this list. So I think that kind of journeyman approach to what they were doing is kind of, you know, worthy of respect. Um, yeah, I think Caution's a great record. Yeah, I mean, like like you said, I, I would say Caution is like the one for hot water music. Like, uh, um, I think it's like nearly perfect. It's, and I mean, the, the, the one-two punch of Remedy and Trusty Chords is like one hell of a way to open up a record. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I I love this record. Um, so the next one, and you kind of hinted at this earlier, Minus the Bear, Highly Refined Pirates, which I would say is probably, at least as far as genre description goes, like a controversial inclusion just because is it really emo or post-hardcore? But I also, as I kind of said in the blurb, like it just didn't really fit in anywhere. And like it certainly wasn't, liked by the um kind of like i guess the the type of like indie rock places that were into like you know interpol and the strokes and all the really big indie rock bands so like minus the bear kind of just ended up becoming like tour mates with emo bands and post-hardcore bands and getting on those kinds of festivals and so i don't know if it fits but like to me it fits enough and where else is it going to be and one of the greatest bands of their era so i had to have it here but i know this is an album that we both really connect on so uh genre description aside talk to me about this record from your point of view yeah so i mean i love this record dearly i think it's fantastic uh so many highlights so many like standout tracks that i would rank as some of the best minus the bear material. Um, I think, you know, I might say that uh, its follow-up, Manoseloso, is probably my favorite minus the bear record. This one's certainly very high in like a discography ranking. Um, but this is one of those ones that I came back to kind of retrospectively, I guess. So I definitely wasn't bumping minus the bear in 2002. But when I discovered it, I was like, oh, shit, this rules. Like, just at every level, everything that they're doing is so interesting. And, you know, the drums, the guitars, the vocals, the lyrics, just such an idiosyncratic band. And like you said in your write-up, like, they didn't really belong anywhere. They never really could fit stylistically in any particular place. They were just very much doing their own thing and doing it so incredibly well. Um, and I think that really comes together on this record and then they just carry it through the 2000s. Um, also, I will say I uh, very much appreciate the Starship Troopers references because that is my favorite movie of all time. So, Yeah, they have a great sense of humor. Um, yeah, yeah, ev- everything you said for sure. I would. This probably is my favorite minus the bear record. Okay. Which, like, the only reason I hate saying that is because, like, I hate the implication of like, oh, you think the debut is the best, but I don't mean it was all downhill from there because I think it was all fantastic from there. But this one just like is nearly perfect to me. And Manos Loso is great. Um, I really like Omni a lot. Um, that I think, I think the song Into the Mirror on Omni like is in the running for the best Minus the Bear song ever written. 
Okay. Controversial. Um, I would say that's the uh, least least favorable record for me. Um, really? Yeah, I can't can't seem to latch onto it. There's like really good tracks, but as an album, I just find it very sleepy and very kind interesting. of interesting, kind of misplaced. Um, hmm. Yeah, so interesting because I think we we definitely both appreciate the band and what they do. So. That's kind of yeah. cool that we come at it from different directions. Yeah. And I want to like, before we get to number five, I want to backtrack. So there were two albums on this list that I felt I kind of had to like massage the definition of a genre to fit. And this is one. And the other one is actually a band who toured with Minus the Bear, uh, the Velvet Team. Do you know that record? I, I think you mentioned earlier that maybe that one was a blind spot. Definitely um, have you heard it spot. since Out of the Fierce Parade? Yeah. So I gave it a listen. Uh, didn't hate it but didn't really latch onto any particular element in a way that I guess kind of, you know, caught fire. Um, Definitely a solid record though. So I think if you're unfamiliar with the Velveteen and wanted to be blown away, I would start with Cum Laude, their 2007 record, I believe, Um, which is this really wild maximalist, like art pop record with like, he sings with distortion the entire time. Um, they have a new drummer on that record who like just plays like the craziest, busiest stuff all the time. Like it's like he, he does everything in his power to like distract from the song without ever actually distracting from it. Um, you should check that record out. So should anybody listening? Cause it's so underrated unless you already know it, then you don't have to check it out. Um, but this one is like kind of like more of a humble beginning type thing. Um, it's just, kind of a straight up like indie rock record there. You can tell that there's like an, a bit of like an artsy or like art rock vibe in there too. Um, But yeah, I just, this is a band that's really important to me. I think that they're so overlooked um, and I don't know if they're truly emo, but they're emo enough. And I just really wanted to show love to the Velveteen because I think that like, to me, they're just one of those like truly great bands who just don't, ever seem to fully get the credit that i think at least that they deserve okay i'll definitely check Um, out that that cum laude record yeah it's super good so back to the top 10 so number five i think is a very non-controversial pick um thrice illusion of safety i mean this is like if you were listening to post hardcore in 2002 this was like really up there i think um and I think Thrice get even better from here, but but already on this record, what a fantastic, unique, like unique yet capturing everything about that moment. Like some, it was just, yeah, I mean, an a, amazing, crucial band that like we, I don't think we would be talking about this style of music without, or at least it would sound different without their influence. Yeah, I agree. And I think returning to this record, what really struck out of me was just how fascinating their journey as a band has been. And just like all of the stylistic detours, um, that like conceptual EP run thing that they did in like the late 2000s. Um, yeah, they're just a very, very interesting band and so capable of doing so many different things and they've come so far like listening to a thrice record now in you know this decade is almost kind of night and day to the stuff that you hear on 
something like the illusion of safety, but it's still them. That core is still there, and it's like undeniable. Um, just a really, really good band. Um, and I, I love this record. Like, I think it's great. I would say, you know, maybe the follow-up is probably the stronger record for this totally. kind of era, for this era of the band. But you can see all of those pieces here on the illusion of safety. They just tighten the bolts, so to speak, on the next one. I think the next one, the artist in the ambulance, is like if you're talking about the records that truly defined like early 2000s post-hardcore, that's one of them. But like you said, like it's all, this is just like, even calling this like a rough draft for that one is an understatement. Like it's, I would say it's nearly as good. And depending on your mood, like it could be better. I mean, like artist ambulance is, is like perfect, but sometimes you don't want perfect. Um, yeah. And this one has got, it's rawer and I mean, it's got Deadbolt, like it's got Kill Me Quickly, See You in the Shallows. Like it's got songs that are amazing thrice songs. Um, so yeah, I think that they're they're really close, but I think Artists in the Ambulance for sure is like, if you had to give somebody 10 records from this whole scene, you might include that one. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I think it's worthy of, certainly worthy of being in this list. And I think their reputation based on this record and how they were able to build off it is is what edges it up there in, in terms of the top 10. Yeah. So four is Piebald, We Are the Only Friends We Have. Was this a, a big record for you or? No, not like... at all. Again, like a band that I have definitely read about, heard about, but never really ventured. Strangely, though, I'm pretty sure the first time I listened to this record was from you and reading another Brooklyn Vegan piece. Uh, or maybe it was another Piebald record. Can't be sure. But I'm pretty sure you turned me onto this band in a, in a focused way. Um, so listening to this album was definitely not the first time that I'd heard it. But I, I went through it again for the list and I was like, oh yeah, this is great. And I can see why Andrew's put it at number four. So I think this is an album where almost like if you know, you know, like I feel like it's it's not as popular as some of the other top 10 records, but I feel like the people who like this record would probably agree I almost wondered if it was too low at number four. <laughs> like there's a part of me that's like, um, you know, like, if, I don't know. I don't want to like, as far as emo goes, like you, it could be one almost like, it's just, it's such a, it's not as popular. It didn't have as much wide influence as so the, the next three that we're going to talk about. Um, but it's just like a perfect record. It holds up so well. And it's just like one of those like things where it's just like you keep rediscovering it because like, again, it's like those who know it, love it. Those who don't know it yet tend to love it once they hear it. It doesn't sound a day old. It's just like, it's like, to me, it's just like perfection. Yeah. I remember, I'm probably going to mess this up, but I have this like memory of reading an interview with Haley Williams in alternative press in like the mid to late 2000s. And in some context, she was 
listing out records that were influential for her or that she liked at the time or something like that. Um, and this was one of those records. And I can remember at the time being like, who the fuck is that? Like, I had no idea who the band was. I'd never heard that record. Um, and I don't even think I went and listened to it at the time. So that was stupid of me. But I just have this vivid memory of, like, that was the first time I saw it mentioned. And I was like, well, shit, if she likes that record, it must be okay. So That's a very good point. Haley's also a huge Me Without You supporter. Indeed, um, indeed. Yeah, she just posted a really awesome tribute to them, and, um, you know, they've collaborated and stuff. And, yeah, H- Haley is, like, as far as someone who is, like, probably one of, like, the top three most famous people in emo, she rides for, like, the underrated bands. It's awesome. Yeah, I still can't get over the fact that she uh, did, like, a guest feature on that Chariot record from, like, 2007 uh even at the time i remember just being like whoa that's crazy and then now i go back to that record and i'm just like that's nuts that she's doing a guest feature on this record like yeah she 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 was there for all this shit like she she lives it she breathes it uh she's a real one yeah and her show everything is emo is like one of the best like emo podcasty things right now um yeah love i can't wait to hear the new paramore record um, it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I can't wait. So number three, Glassjaw Worship and Tribute. Uh, do you have connection to this record? or I don't have a connection to this record specifically. But again, like Glassjaw was this band that I got the sense from, you know, my my removed kind of location from from this scene that, you know, they were always spoken about with such reverence. Even in like the mid two thousands, people were always talking about just how incredible Glassjaw were or how influential their records were. Um, so by the time I actually got around and listened to them, you know, I think it kind of pains me to admit, but it took me a little bit of time to really get it. Um, and it was only really once I started doing music writing and really kind of doing research and looking into how all of these things click together that I kind of saw just how important they were for this time and you know on on its own a fantastic record like such good songwriting such a unique way of delivering this particular style of music um, and obviously Daryl Colombo is like one of the best frontmen that this type of music has ever had so yeah like huge record i love listening to it um but it took me some time to really kind of let it unfold Mm -hmm. yeah um my experience is a little different but like we said earlier i was like living close to where they were and where i lived i mean it was I mean, no band was more influential in real time than Glassjaw. I think that's like almost, I don't know if that's totally the case, but like there's a good argument to be made. Like the amount of Daryl Palumbo ripoff vocalists in like local bands in New York, forget about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it was like, I mean, yeah, like Glassjaw at the drive-in, maybe Thursday would probably were very also very imitated bands, but so many people wanted to be Daryl Palumbo. I mean, even like like every time I die, if you listen to their first record, it's obvious and he's admitted that he wanted to sound like Daryl Palumbo on that record. Um, like, and they're one of the biggest bands from this world. So like 
from from your random local band to every time I die, everybody was ripping off Daryl Palumbo. Um, and yeah, I, I just feel like what can be said about this record that hasn't been said, but like, it's fantastic. It's brutal. It's catchy. It's weird. It's just like, yeah. And it holds up really well. And it's just like an obvious classic. And I bet there are a lot of people out there who would have said it's number one. Yeah. And I mean, you could, you could release that record today and it would, you know, it would be very contemporary and people would lose their minds over it. Like it, it doesn't sound dated in any way at all. Yeah, I mean, when they put out their 2017 like comeback record, it pretty much sounds like they always have sounded, and it also didn't sound outdated. Um, so the next one, which we kind of you touched on a bit, was Rilo Kiley, uh, Execution of All Things. And like you said, like you can really hear the influence, and I certainly talked about that in the blurb. I mean, um, I think when you listen to the last decade of emo the influence of Rilo Kylie is completely undeniable. Um, I, I would say this record is the one that is the most influential within emo. I think me, I don't know if it's everybody's favorite Rilo Kylie record. It's my favorite Rilo Kylie record, but I think it's definitely like their most very, very emo record. Um, I mean like, but yeah, this like, Again, like as it says in the blurb, like Katie Crutchfield from Waxahachie has said, like Rilo Kylie changed my life and Jenny Lewis was a genius on this album. Like that's the kind of influence this has. I mean, like I know like at this point, Waxahachie, like, no, I don't think anybody would call Waxahachie emo, but I kind of consider Waxahachie emo at first. Um, and um, and yeah, like and as it says in the blurb too, like even like Taylor Swift has been influenced by this band. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just think like, as far as stuff from 2002 that holds up today and is influential today, like, again, this, this could have been number one. There's an argument to be made that this is actually the most influential album on the list for the past 10 years of music. Um, that's, that's what I would say about this album. Yeah, I think you could, you could definitely argue that claim. Um, you know, we'll get into the number one in just a little bit, but I think, yeah, I can certainly see the influence in, you know, your your third and fourth wave kind of emo stuff. Uh, and like you said, like if Taylor Swift is kind of, you know, saying that this record had some influence, like that's huge. Like that stretches completely out of the emo post-hardcore orbit. So yeah, definitely a cool record. One that I'm a little bit bummed that I guess I'd never really gotten to until now, um, but I'll certainly go back to it. Awesome, and yeah, also Taylor Swift, uh, Jimmy World fan. Do you uh, did you see that Apple? I think it's Apple commercial. It's like she's on the treadmill, like to the middle by Jimmy World, and she's like, "I used to love this song." <laughs> no, I haven't seen that, but that's sick. Yeah, so Taylor Swift, emo ambassador. Okay, good for her. Um, so before we get to number one. Um, before we say what it is, even though if you're listening this long, you've probably already looked. Is it your number one? And if not, what is your number one? I think it's definitely my number one. I okay. Only because if we're talking about emo, post-hardcore that I was listening to in 2002, it was this record. Like, this is the only record you know, that I can definitively say 
from this list that I was listening to in 2002. Like, I'd already come across it and was in love with it. Um, whereas a lot of the other stuff that I certainly do love uh, on this list, I had to, as we've mentioned, kind of come back to later or kind of get in through other gateway bands and stuff. But no, Taking Back Sunday were one of those bands, like, when I first heard it, like, the first song, it's just like a fucking lightning bolt. Like, something something goes off in your teenage brain and you're like, yes, this is it. Uh, and it's still like that. Like, I listen to it today and I'm like, God, this record, insane. Just a band with, like, limitless potential. Um, yeah, insane record. Yeah, totally to everything you just said. I mean, the, I this is also one of the ones that I heard very soon after it was released. Um, such a staple of my life ever since. And like, I mean, you could, if you had to give somebody one album to describe third wave emo, third wave emo, it could be this one. Like, yeah. And it's just, I mean, there are emo nights named after this band. Um, as I said in the blurb too, like, I mean, I feel like there's a great article in Stereogum about like emo and pop punk's relationship to like whatever is the social media of the moment. And like in the early 2000s, one of the big ones was AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. And the amount of away messages and AIM profiles and AIM, like animated AIM icons that were taking back Sunday lyrics, like everybody was quoting this record, like for better or for worse, because like there are lines on the record that even Adam Lazara today is kind of like regrets and um, you know, it doesn't have the healthiest relationship with relationships. Um, but it, uh, it really, really just like encapsulated that sound, that era, that genre, like, I mean, yeah, like this, this was for teenagers, like, I don't know, like what, like Nirvana or Green Day were for teenagers like a decade earlier. Like this was the version of punk rock that, kids in the early 2000s went to the most fervently the quickest like i think this is this record is one of the reasons that emo basically became like the dominant form of punk rock for like millennial teens yeah um, absolutely. It, it was it was punk rock you could call your own like i mean again like i mean we're saying punk rock maybe it's emo whatever but like before i heard this album i was already into like pop punk like i was into like blink 182 and some 41 and stuff like that. And like, so it was an easy transition to this because it's not that different from those bands, even though taking back Sunday were coming from like hardcore and even like mid Midwest emo and stuff. But like whether they wanted to be called pop punk or not, they were pop punk adjacent. There was an easy transition there, but this was like, I mean, I already felt, you know, like Blink-182 was kind of my own, but then, but they were already so big, like it was, they were too big to grasp at that point. Taking Back Sunday were like, you could like see yourself in Taking Back Sunday. I mean, not everybody could, but like, if you're a suburban, like white male preteen, you, <laughs> I don't know, like, but anyway, like they, they were like the band that was your own and they were accessible and they were right there and they were like it just it felt like a sea change where like it if you were a young teenager at that point like here's your punk rock like you know it's not your older siblings punk rock it's not your parents punk rock it's yours yeah 
no, and that's that's absolutely how I felt in the moment. Like again, like I was, you know, from a from a small town, you know, and my friends and I, you know, we all kind of like shared music and kind of listened to our own thing. And like, you know, back then we felt like we discovered Taking Back Sunday. Like it was our thing. Like we found it and we were like, this is sick. You know, no one else at our high school was listening to this. Like, this is for us. Um, you know, and of course, there were many people, you know, across the ocean doing the same thing. But like, for me, it was definitely that thing of like, oh, this is my punk rock. And being 14 at the time, like, was just such a perfect age for this record. Um, you know, I don't know how the guys in Taking Back Sunday would necessarily feel about that statement, but I think it is true. Like, everything that they're doing on that record is accessible in the way that you just described with pop punk, but there's a certain level of angst and emotion and, and kind of uh, theatricality in its expression that really appeals to the teenage brain. And... I just love the shit out of this record. And I still do. Like, I know this record front to back. I know the little piano interludes. I know the weird, like, vocal layered, like, screams and stuff in the background. Like, it's insane how much this record is imprinted in my brain. Yeah. And I mean, and you're, and we're, we are not alone, you know? Like, you, like it says in the blurb, like, you hear Cute Without the E come on in public. And there's just like a reaction it elicits from people between the ages of like, I don't know, like maybe 27 and 35 or something. And that's even probably like smaller window than the real window. But like that song comes on at weddings and people go nuts. I think like Ariel might have just written that over at the ringer. They did their most important emo songs of each year. And it's true. And like, it, you know, like comes on an emo night. Like it's one of the biggest hits you're going to hear at emo night. Um, and yeah, like just to your point about like, you know, like, Taking Back Sunday to call them an underground band might sound a little bit silly, but when this came out, like, you know, they were a lot smaller than Blink-182. They weren't on a major label. Finding them felt like you were in on some secret, even if in hindsight, you're like, oh, they were already like pretty big. And of course, they eventually signed to a major. They eventually are all over television. But in 2002, you were in on some secret if you were like a younger kid and like, this came to you and you had previously only been listening to like major label bands and bands on MTV. Yeah. I have a distinct impression of like sitting in our family car, doing long drives from like where we live to, you know, like Brisbane, like the major city. It's like a eight hour drive or something like that, you know? And I have this distinct memory of sitting in the backseat with my, you know, Sony Discman and my copy of, tell all your friends and I'm irritated and annoyed at my parents for simply wanting to communicate with me and talk because all I want to do is listen to this record and play it from start to finish and then over again and over again and over again and I did that for years so that's the type of staying power that this record had at the time and still has yeah so before we wrap up, are there any other records on the list that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I think, you know, we've already gone through some of the 
honorable mentions. Um, I think even though the list, as we've discussed, is like emo and post-hardcore, we have kind of expanded the remit a little bit to include some of your your heavier bands, your metalcore bands and stuff that were definitely in this pool and, you know, certainly playing festivals and tour lineups and stuff. Um, so you had Poison the Wells' uh, Tear from the Red at number 20. Um, I think probably the most underrated Poison the World record, at least in my kind of assessment. Um, it's also my favorite Poison the World record. Um, I love that record, and I think it doesn't get enough love. So seeing it on this list and seeing it at number 20 was uh, was nice for me. I was like, oh, thank you, Andrew. I, I like that someone else enjoys this record. Um, you've also got the, the Norma Jean uh, debut record, which was huge. Um, the Alexis on Fire self-titled record. Um, huge gateway record for people here in Australia. Uh, Alexis on Fire, for whatever reason, are just massive here. I'm not entirely sure what that is or why, but um, they toured here relentlessly throughout the 2000s because they had such a huge, you know, devoted fan base. Um, and I can remember hearing that record for the first time and just being like, what the hell is this? This is insane. Um, and then I think the other one worth mentioning is the uh, the Hope's Fall record, The Satellite Years. You and I talked about this in the, in the DMs uh, kind of off chat, but yeah, I, I adore that record. So um, all of those uh, I love, and I like seeing them where they are on the list. Um, but to your point, I think there's a bunch of records in that metalcore vein um, that came out in 2002, which are worth mentioning, um, probably not worth including in the list, and that's obviously why they're not there. But I think they nonetheless kind of uh, set the groundwork for the kind of metalcore explosion that was to come in the years following. Um, so I'm thinking of Atreyu's Suicide Notes and Butterfly Kisses, uh, Bleeding Through's Portrait of the Goddess, 18 Visions Vanity, which they're currently touring at the moment, uh, Kill Switch Engage, Live or Just Breathing, um, and then another underrated one, which is uh, Everything I Touch Falls to Pieces by uh, Dead to Fall. Um, so all of those came out in 2002, all of them very, um, I think, important for the journey that Metalcore was going to take in the 2000s. I would say that a Treyu record especially could fit on this list. I mean, they probably all could, but like a Treyu were, I think, very much like tied to emo. I mean, being on Victory Records was, I think, part of that. And like, because they would, you know, you'd buy, like, tell all your friends, they would come with a sampler of other Victory songs, and that would be one of them. Um and also they had clean vocal choruses, so they were like accessible to emo people. Um, that was, they were all, everything you just named, you know, I think either was or could have been a contender. Um, but yeah, um, my take on Atreyu, I think, is similar to what I was saying about like the used in a way where like, um, I like Atreyu in real time. Sometimes going back to it now, it, I don't feel like, like, I think that Poison the Well record, as far as Metalcore goes, still blows my mind. Whereas, like, a trade, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is 2002. Yeah. But no, um, I, 
I, I would agree. I think, you know, if you're trying to rank those records and see which one is worthy of being in the list 20 years on, I think that Poison the World record deserves to be in there because it's very, I guess, kind of contemporary in how it sounds, you know, 20 years removed. Um, and I think, like, I like that you said that that record's your favorite of theirs. It might be my favorite of theirs, too. Um it's cool. Cause, I mean, like, so their debut record, The Opposite of December, is like one of the most influential metalcore records of all time. And really, I think that record is it came out at the end of 1999 and it like truly is like the end of sort of the heavier, more hardcore punk informed 90s metalcore and the beginning of 2000s metalcore with big, catchy choruses. And um and so then all these bands come out, are out and they rip off the opposite of December and then Poison the Well is like, oh, we're going to do something entirely different. So they do, um, you know, Tear from the Red, which is like this more experimental record um, and, and not as experimental as what they would do later on in their career. Um, but like it's, it's still heavy, but they're clearly just like on a different playing field. Like I almost um, don't, I mean, I, it is metalcore, but I almost like, don't consider it metalcore. It's almost more just like, I almost would call it just post hardcore just because I almost feel like that's a, in a way, like a even more encompassing term because that record is just like hardcore, but beyond. Um, and, and even calling it metalcore, I almost think limits some of the, what's explored on that record. Yeah, I agree. Like I think in terms of like, you know, the riffs and stuff like that, like it's not as, uh, intricate and not as, uh, let's say, like, you know, melodic death metal influenced as some of, like, your early metalcore records are. Like, it doesn't, doesn't really have the metal of the metalcore. It definitely hues more to, like, your hardcore and your post-hardcore sound, like, just big, you know, chunky chords and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think for me, like, getting into that record... I saw the clip for Botchler and I was like, this is sick. I need this. I'm going to listen to this. And I still feel that way 20 years now. But, you know, that clip and how that song is structured, how it sounds, the production, like people are still trying to rip off that now. And bands were doing it all through the 2000s down to like, the performance aspect of that video clip, like the band performance in like the concrete bunker warehouse type setting. Like I know they weren't the first to do that, but it's just such a beautiful time capsule moment in like the early two thousands that would just be continually revisited over and over and over and over again. For sure. Well, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Owen. No worries. Thanks for having me. This was great. For sure. All right. Until next time. Thanks, Andrew. Hey, thanks for listening. Uh, go check out the full list of the best emo and post-hardcore albums of 2002 on Brooklyn Vegan. And uh, before we go, I just want to give a quick shout to another podcast that I'm a big fan of right now. It's called The Record Process. It's co-hosted by Casey Cavalier of The Wonder Years and producer, mixer, engineer, Tom Conran. 
as the name implies, they have musicians on, they talk about the process behind a specific album. They've got recent episodes of Meet Me at the Altar. They have one with Steve Evans, who produces The Wonder Years. They've got one with Joe from Algernon Cadwalder, Chris Number Two from Anti-Flag. It's a really, really cool podcast, uh, and I really, I can't recommend it enough. So go check that out, The Record Process, and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you again. Thank you.